At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. Now it's time to talk about dirty work and the people who do it, the low-income workers who do our most ethically troubled jobs. For that, we turn to Al Press. He's an award-winning journalist and writer whose work has appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, and The Nation. He's also a Puffin Foundation writing fellow at the Type Media Center. His new book is Dirty Work, Essential Jobs and the Hidden Toll of Inequality in America. We reached him today in New York City. Al Press, welcome back. Thank you so much, John. Great to be here. Well, the pandemic brought us to appreciate and to honor and cheer for essential workers, especially hospital staff, but also grocery store clerks, garbage collectors, the delivery men who bring us the stuff we've needed over the past year and a half. But you're concerned with an even more hidden class of workers who do jobs that you call morally troubling, people we'd rather not think about, and people who we certainly do not cheer for. Who are they? You're very right that, that the term essential jobs almost deserves air quotes in my subtitle because um, I'm not actually saying that were this the just society that many of your listeners would, would like to have, these jobs would be around, but they are around. And I'm talking about the people who run America's prison system, the largest prison system in the world, um, as, as you're aware. I'm talking about people who carry out targeted assassinations in the drone program or people who man the kill floors of industrial slaughterhouses. All of those jobs are essential to the American way of life or the prevailing social order. They are not essential in some immutable way that suggests, you know, this is how we would want the world to be. But I do contend in the book that just as we discovered during the pandemic, this sort of convenient arrangement where you had people who, in, from more privileged professions, white collar uh, professions, bankers, software engineers, who had the, the, the privilege to shelter in place as other people delivered their groceries to them, as other people got the, the goods out of the warehouses for them and, and took great risks. So we have a, as well, a moral division of labor. And it is not an equal division. It is a division whereby people with fewer choices and opportunities are generally delegated what I refer to as these, these sullying, degrading jobs. And we can talk more about the specific cases I look, I look into. You start uh, your new book, Dirty Work, with a tough case, prison guards. Ever since over-incarceration became an issue, we've blamed uh, the prison guards as a key force, along with the police, pushing for more prisons, more prisoners, longer sentences, because the lobbying by their unions has been so effective. We record our show in California, which the state reached a kind of tipping point a couple of years ago when taxpayers started spending more money on prisons than on schools. 
we consider prison guards and their unions to be a really malevolent force in our state. But you suggest another way of looking at prison guards. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't deny any of what you just said. It's, it's part of the story, but it's not the whole story. And I think one other, a, a different way to, um, to think about prison guards is as agents of a society that has built this prison system, not only to warehouse two million, more than two million of our fellow citizens in often extremely brutal and violent conditions, but also to effectively run our mental health system. Because jails and prisons in the United States, in in I think every state at this point, um, the largest mental health institution is not a public hospital. It is not a community health center. It is a jail or a prison. And actually, I begin the book by by looking at the mental health aides who work at a particularly violent prison in Florida, where the incarcerated people, uh, mentally ill people, are being horrifically abused. And this puts those mental health aides in a terrible dilemma, in a position whereby if they say something, if they report what's happening, they're liable to get in trouble and to uh, you know, have the guards retaliate against them. And they rely on these guards for their own security, to open doors for them and to be there in the rec yard. So if, if they challenge the guards, they're, they're risking something. If they don't challenge them, they're going along with human rights abuses. But in the next section, I do indeed complicate the story by looking at the guards themselves. Let's focus here, as you do at the beginning of your book, on the story of the death of one mentally ill man in this Florida prison named Darren Rainey. We know what happened to him only because of heroic action by a couple of whistleblowers on the prison staff who reported on the sadistic behavior of most of the other guards. And the story is truly horrifying, almost unbearable to read about. But you say these Sadistic guards are not to blame for the system, the inhumane system that they are part of. Right. So, and let me just correct one tiny thing that's very important, actually. None of the staff actually reported what happened to Rainey. It was another prisoner, a guy named Harold Hempstead, who reported it, who blew the whistle. And that tells you something about how the system, you know, constrains all of the people in it, including the very well-intentioned mental health aides I, I interviewed. But to, to turn to the guards, you know, I interviewed one guard in particular in depth. I, he shared his diaries with me. He, he, he spoke to me uh, very frankly about um, the brutality that guards in Florida do meet out. And he called these fellow officers, he called them serial bullies. He said, you know, some of these guys just beat inmates, beat prisoners, uh, you know, in, in a way that's just a kind of cruelty he'd never witnessed before. And this guy was a military veteran, as a lot of uh, uh, corrections officers are. Um, so here you're thinking, okay, the way you just described them as this malevolent force is, is exactly accurate. But he went on to say, you know, the people of Florida get what they pay for when, when you talk about what goes on in, their prison, in the prisons. You know, why do these abuses happen? Well, you could, you could attribute it to character flaws, but you could also look at the fact that Florida spends... Uh, it has the third largest prison system in the country. And at the time that I was writing and these abuses were occurring, it spent the second least on mental health services in the country. So what do you have? You have a jail and prison system that is overcrowded. It is often filled with people with severe mental health problems who are cycling through. And Bill Curtis, the guard I interviewed, like a lot of the guards, get no training. 
to deal with this particular population. And indeed, if you asked a psychiatrist or asked a psychologist, you know, where would you least want to take a person in the throes of a mental health crisis, they would likely say, you know, a jail or a prison. And yet that's what happens. And so surprise, surprise, you combine a lack of rehabilitative services, a lack of health services, overcrowded conditions, and by the way, a pared down staff, thanks to then Governor Rick Scott, who of course today is Senator Scott, um, who cut the prison budget significantly. And as Curtis said to me, you know, when you're an officer in that, condi- in, that in those situations, you learn there's only one way to control the place. And that way is through brute force. And this is sort of the message that society sends, but it's all done and hidden. It's all, it's all sort of veiled from, from scrutiny, not seen. And then when a scandal like the Rainey case erupts, people say, oh, look at those sadistic guards. Well, I'm saying in the book, don't look just at those guards. Look at the, society, the social conditions that gave rise to this system and the shared responsibility that all of us have. But let's be clear, the primary victims of this kind of dirty work, in your view, are not the people who do it. The primary victims are the people they're brutalizing. But you are concerned about what you call the moral and emotional wounds that dirty workers sustain, hidden injuries, they've been called in a famous uh, book from from their work. Uh, Tell us a little more about that. You know, a major theme of my book is is the concept of moral injury, the idea that um, if you are doing a job that requires you to meet out violence or that requires you to um, survey villagers through uh, drones that at any moment could leave innocent civilians dead. um, And you see that, but the society that put you there doesn't, that those jobs carry a psychic toll that is very hard, I think almost impossible to capture in statistics but that is very important in measuring a worker's sense of self-esteem, the degradation they experience, the lack of dignity. You know, Biden said when he accepted the Democratic nomination, he was telling a story about his father. And he said, you know, uh, his father told him, uh, you know, Joey, a a job isn't just uh, a paycheck. It's also a source of dignity. It's about a person's place in the community. Those are the themes I'm looking at and asking, you know, if you're the, the, the prison guards I spoke to, uh, by and large, were people who wanted to do something else. They took a, what, what is called a job of last resort, and they took it maybe because it had benefit. In Florida, the pay is very low, but it does have benefits. So as one of the, one of the guards told me, you know, it was either a little higher salary and no benefits or this job with benefits. But with all of the, and I would say moral costs that go along with it. And, and you're very right that I by no means am saying they're the primary victims. Just as in, in the section of the book on drones, I make it clear that the primary victims of an errand drone strike are innocent civilians, are, are, are people like those killed in the strike as the U.S. was leaving Afghanistan. But there is a second secondary set of victims, I think, that, that in a way are both perpetrators and victims, and, and that is these dirty workers. And there's a special case in the prisons, which is prison guards who are people of color. Many of the prisoners, of course, are people of color, and there are also guards who are people of color. And a lot of people's first response would be, well, how can they brutalize their own people? This is another question you've looked into. I interview a black officer, a black security guard, who on one hand told me about the racism of his fellow officers and about 
being stopped on the way to work uh, and pulled over repeatedly. And even when he had his badge ready to show the cop, you know, hey, I'm 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 an officer, too. It didn't matter. He was just viewed as as uh, a black man who was a suspect in, in the officer's eyes. So all of that is true. And yet at the same time, you know, it's it's quite striking during the era of mass incarceration, states like Florida and, and in other parts of the country, the proportion of the prison workforce, um, the correctional workforce that is black and or Latino um, increased significantly as did, by the way, the, the percentage of the, of the workforce that is female. And in the particular prison I'm looking at, Dade, a, a lot of the workforce, the, the frontline guards, were female Black officers who were working and, and, and often coming from the same neighborhoods that some of the incarcerated people came from, very depressed, very um, few opportunities for jobs. And, you know, again, this doesn't in any way take away from the, you know, it doesn't excuse the fact that there, the violence happens and, and, and folks should be held accountable, but it suggests that um, the powerful and the privileged have found a very convenient way to delegate this work to people lower on the social ladder than themselves, and not only to delegate the work, but, but in a way to, to keep both the workers and the work itself invisible. And there's another set of hard-to-see uh, workers that I'm very interested in that you write about, the slaughterhouse workers, who are some of the most degraded, oppressed, and hard-to-find uh, workers in our society. The slaughterhouses have been moved out to remote uh, rural areas specifically to get them away from the big cities where they were uh, more visible. I remember that there was a time when this was a more honorable job. From the 40s to the 60s, slaughterhouse workers had a strong Progressive Union, the United Packing House Workers, which fought for and won a national contract, which gave them not only high wages and safe working conditions, but this was also a union that was famous for its fight for racial integration of their workplace and social justice in the nation. They, they got blacks appointed shop stewards. They supported the March on Washington. Then in the early 70s, this union was broken. The union workers were fired. The line was speeded up. The slaughterhouses were moved to remote areas and undocumented immigrants were brought in and exploited mercilessly. But this history suggests it wasn't always like that. And, and that in turn suggests it doesn't have to be. Yeah, that's absolutely true. You've done a great job of sketching the history there that, that, that sort of starts with, you know, from Upton Sinclair, I trace it myself, to you know, some of the brutalities he wrote about. And very interestingly, if you go back and read The Jungle, you'll see all kinds of passages where he's talking about not just the injuries that the workers suffer, but the feeling of degradation, the dirtiness. You know, they, he, he, there's a passage in the book where he talks about you can't even find a place to wash your hands. You know, and that's not just about getting, it's, it's about this sense of being stigmatized, right? You just, you're in there killing, you're with the blood and the, and the gore of this. But as you say, the, 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 there was a very strong union movement that didn't necessarily make the job any less bloody, but certainly did make it less dangerous, certainly did make it less degrading, uh, certainly made it better paying. That fell apart in the 70s through a very concerted corporate strategy led by a company then called IBP. And they started importing strike breakers from Mexico, basically, in, in Nebraska and in other places. And that low-wage strategy took over the industry and is, is especially apparent in the, the sector I look at, which is poultry slaughterhouses. 
So I know your purpose in this book is not to propose new legislation that will uh, solve this problem, but it does raise the question, especially with prison guards, how much of this is necessary? Of course, there's been a movement led by Angela Davis to abolish prisons so that no one is subject to this kind of brutality again. The question really is how much of this, the dirty work you write about really is necessary? And if so, does it have to be that dirty? I hope there's a conversation on, on all, about all the forms of work I write about can be opened up. You know, I also write about uh, dirty tech and, and you know, the, the gadgets that we all use ha- has a form of dirty work that, that has just been um, outsourced and, and taken offshore, namely the mining that goes on for cobalt in the Congo uh, with child labor and brutal conditions and all kinds of middlemen, uh, these companies that sell from one to another, and that eventually makes its way to Apple and Microsoft and all the companies that we all patronize and patronize. And, and I, I should say, you know, that, that's the point of the book. I'm trying to, to connect this dirty work to our lives to show how, in fact, we rely on it, whether we see it or not. And so then that begs a question, well, what can you do about it? And my conclusion is, and I suggest very strongly, you can't do that much about it as an individual consumer. I mean, yeah, you could you could stop eating meat. You could decide not to buy these gadgets, but someone else will keep buying them. And, you know, there are there are plenty of customers um, lining up. Uh, The fast food chains will continue to profit. So the only real solutions are political and I would say are collective, just as as the responsibility for dirty work is shared. So too, any any way of altering this work has to be a sort of shared endeavor, a collective enterprise. We together share the responsibility for the harm done by dirty workers and for the emotional injuries they suffer. And we together can change what we require of them. The book is Dirty Work. The author is A.L. Press. A.L., thanks for this book and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you so much for the opportunity, John. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. 